0: thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. I'm in First Kings chapter 21. One of the frustrating things about being a Bible-believing Christian, one of the frustrating things that we encounter is that often we find that the world is not tipped toward the good in the world that we, we think it ought to be. Like, if, if we believe that God is good and gracious and loves his people and shows favor to his people, we believe that God shows favor to his people, we, we struggle then when it seems like lying gets you ahead. We, we struggle when it seems like those who are not doing the purpose of God seem to be advanced further than the people who are trying to do the purpose of God. We, we struggle with, with the, the kind of overwhelming evidence in this world that it, following God doesn't always mean that you, you walk an easy road. And not following God doesn't mean that you always walk a difficult road. In fact, it seems flipped from what it should be. It seems like the wicked have it easy and sometimes the righteous have a difficult time. And I've been reading through, as I'm reading through the Bible this year, I've been reading in the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job's comforters, they come to comfort him and they accuse him. <laughs> they, they say, Job, the reason you're suffering the way you are, because Job's, all of his children die, he loses all of his wealth, he, he, is, he is completely destitute, and then he is afflicted with boils from head to toe, and he, the only relief he can find is taking a broken piece of pottery and scratching on his skin as hard as he can. It doesn't seem like a good existence. His own wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Because it is that bad. And Job's comforters come, and they do one good thing, they just sit and cry with him for a week. But then after that week's over, they say, Job, stop sinning. Just stop sinning. If you would just stop sinning. God doesn't treat good people the way that you have been treated, Job. And Job observes, it's just not that way. Look at the world around us. Is it not true that the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? And and so over and over again, we, we see this. It, Job is probably like the first of the books of the Bible that was written. It's probably like the, the oldest recorded story. That means like From way back, (laughs) this isn't like 18th century way back, this is like thousands of years before Jesus, people were observing this phenomenon, and here we are 2,000 years after Jesus, still observing this phenomenon. So today I'm looking at a story that reminds us of God's justice, but frustratingly, at the same time, it it reminds us of God's patience and God's mercy. So, we've been looking at stories from the life of the prophet Elijah, and we've been going through the book of 1 Kings. In, in the, the prophet Elijah, there's an Old Testament prophet, in, in the days of Elijah, God's people had split into two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah. And Elijah was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, where Ahab was king. And Ahab is the worst. He is a notoriously bad king. In fact, from now on in the Old Testament, anytime there's a bad king, he will be compared to Ahab. He was wicked. He walked in the path of Ahab. That's how bad Ahab is. He is the standard for bad kings from now on. And mostly, Ahab was bad because he worshipped the Baals. He worshipped gods, uh, false gods from the neighboring people. He married a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel was, was a devotee to Baal, the god of her people. She was, she was from a different group of people. And, and she brought the worship of Baal into the home. And the prophets of Baal that she employed to show her devotion to Baal, she, she just took Ahab off course and... And so the story we're looking at today is is a quaint story of the household difficulties that royals suffer from time to time. It's a a story of Ahab wanting something and not getting it, and Jezebel taking, taking royal privilege to a height that Ahab had never really considered. So the story goes like this. It's in 1 Kings chapter 21. Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel, who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, "'Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, "'I would like to buy it and use it as a vegetable garden. "'I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, "'or, if you prefer, I will pay you for it.' "'But Naboth replied, "'The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance "'that was passed down by my ancestors.' So Ahab went went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to his bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. This is mature. This is not always an example of what to do. What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? "'I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused,' Ahab told her. "'Are you the king of Israel or not?' Jezebel demanded. "'Get up and eat something, and don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard.'" So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent them to the elders and the other leaders in the town where Naboth lived." In the letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for fasting and prayer and give Naboth a place of honor, and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders of the other town and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast and put Naboth in a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat down across from him. And they accused Naboth before all the people, saying, He cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, you know the vineyard Naboth wanted uh, wouldn't sell you. Well, you can have it now, he's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth and claimed it. I'm going to uh, just kind of walk through this story real, real briefly. Let me let me just say: Jezreel and Samaria, these two two towns that are listed, there's like a geographic conundrum here because they're not next to each other and and every time Ahab is mentioned he's mentioned as Ahab of Samaria and Naboth's vineyard appears to be in Jezreel and there's like significant different distance and and so there's a geographical difficulty here. I am going to talk about what we do as believers in the Bible when there is a geographical difficulty in a Facebook live video tomorrow. So Keep posted and watch Facebook because I'm going to talk about how, how we understand a geographical conundrum in Scripture as Bible-believing Christians tomorrow, in the afternoon, sometime on Facebook. You can You can go back and watch it if you can't be on live when I, I'm there, but uh, it'll be, I, I just want to touch on it because it's, I think it's important. So I think I'll, I'll talk about that. Anyway, to the story at hand, um, when we read Ahab's request... To, to Naboth. Give me, let it, let's let exchange, or or let me pay you for your vineyard. It seems like a pretty reasonable request, really. Like, we are not accustomed to Ahab being reasonable in the book of 1 Kings, so this is like uncharacteristically reasonable that Ahab would say, hey, let's just trade, okay? Let's just, let, let me give you something better. Let me pay you a fair price, whatever it takes, man. I just really want that because it'd be just a perfect vegetable garden for me, and I really want that vegetable garden. And so, it seems like, it seems like a pretty reasonable request. And, and to our ears, we don't really understand why it's an unreasonable request until Naboth responds. And Naboth responds, and he says, well, I, I can't just give you my ancestral inheritance. Like, this is, the, when, when God's people moved into the promised land, they divided up the promised land among the, among the tribes and then the clans and the families. And, and for, for hundreds of years at this point, Naboth's family had been passing down the land that had been given to them in that initial dividing of the land. And, and God had told the people to preserve your inheritance. Don't trade away the land that the Lord has given you. And and so God gave a provision in the book of Leviticus. God gave a provision where people could trade away the land for a period of time. And then every 70 years, there would be a restoration. And every 70 years, everybody would go back to the land that was their inheritance. The problem was that God's people never actually practiced that. There's never recorded in the Old Testament a time when the people obeyed the law of God and returned all of the land that was sold to the families that originally had them. And so by the time God's people had been settled, as long as they had in in Ahab's day, land transactions were permanent. And in Leviticus 25, you can look it up, it says, do not permanently trade away the land that you are inheriting, the land that God is giving you in the promised land. And so, because of that, because Naboth understood the law, and, and he gives us a little glimpse into why he's un, unwilling to trade with Ahab, we understand that Ahab is kind of making a rotten request on somebody. Ahab is, is really saying, okay, Naboth, uh, I know there's this Old Testament, this law, this, this thing that Moses gave us way back then that said we shouldn't, shouldn't trade the land. I'll give you something better. I'll give you something better, and and you can have something that isn't in, you know, your lousy old inheritance. This is, this is real nice vineyard that I'll give you, and Naboth proves what a righteous person does. He says, I I can't, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to accept the, this nice offer that you're giving me, and so the Ahab, Ahab goes home sulking, And it's kind of funny, he's just, you know, he's so sad, he won't eat. He sounds like a four year old, right? He as a king, he is not accustomed to hearing the word no. And like a four year old who doesn't like to hear the word no, Ahab goes and sulks. And he goes to his bed and he lays down, he looks at the wall, and he pouts, he sticks his lip out and he won't eat anything. And Jezebel comes in and says, "What is wrong with you?" She just she cannot understand how someone who is a king would act that way. And and, uh, Ahab says, "You know, I wanted Naboth's vineyard, but he wouldn't give it to me." And Jezebel says, "Well, are you the king, or are you not the king?" And and Jezebel, we we realize at this point, we we kind of remember that Jezebel comes from a different people than Ahab. Ahab is an Israelite. And as far as he has fallen from the the faith of his people, as far away as he has gone from the God of his people, he still has an understanding of what God expects of Israelite kings. Ahab still has an understanding of God's order for leadership among God's people. Jezebel, meanwhile, brings the Phoenician way. Jezebel is not an Israelite. She, she's from the, the people known as Sidonians or, or Phoenicians as the broader people group uh, that historians talk about. They were, they were coastal people. They were very worldly people. And they were people whose kings ruled with an iron fist. They, they said, this is the way things are. And that was the way things were. And Jezebel grew up in the house of a king. She was the daughter of a king. And so she knew that, Kings don't accept no for an answer. Kings don't pout when somebody says no, because when somebody says no, that person gets killed. And so Jezebel shows Ahab what a king should do. And she, takes, she uses his, his authority. She takes his seal. It's the, it's the evidence that this document has come from the desk of the king she uses his seal and she writes letters in his name to the people, presumably of Jezreel, the, presumably of the town where, where Naboth is from. And she arranges all the details. And, and she, uh, she just she shows utter contempt for the people that she is supposed to be ruling, right? She just shows utter contempt. She doesn't consider, she doesn't consider Naboth at all, obviously. He is simply an obstacle to be squashed and and then you know the scoundrels it they're necessary in her plan she doesn't consider that you know, she's making a liar out of them she doesn't consider that there there's all of these problems for the people pulling the strings behind the scenes in Jezreel when they when they go about doing what Jezebel has said she she understands the law well enough to know that it takes two witnesses uh, uh that somebody has cursed God in order to stone them. So she makes sure that there's two witnesses and she leaves the rest of the details to the people of Jezreel. And she says, go ahead, make sure that there's two witnesses, make sure you stone, let me know when it's done. And they, they give confirmation and Ahab hears, Jezebel tells Ahab and Ahab just dances to the, to the vineyard, right? He is so giddy. You can just see him like just so happy that he has gotten this vineyard. And, well, all's well that ends well. See you next week, folks. Right? Isn't I love a happy ending, don't you? Uh, <laughs> well, the story actually goes on. It, it continues on as, as Elijah comes into the scene in verse 17. So in, in 1 Kings 21, 17, and, and I'll read for, for most of the rest of the chapter here, it says, But the Lord said to Elijah, Go down and meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough for you to, uh, that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. So your enemy... Uh, So, my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed. Let me just point out real quickly, there's an interesting thing that happens in the narrative. We go immediately from God giving instructions to Elijah. God is speaking to Elijah, telling Elijah what he is supposed to say to Ahab. And we go immediately from that. It's like one of those scenes of the movie where someone says, go to that place and say these words. And then as the words are being said, it switches, the camera switches to the scene where the person is fulfilling the instructions. That's exactly what happens. It is it is. God is explaining to, to Elijah. We don't know where he is, but he's told to get up from there and go. So he's he's somewhere else and God says, go and say these words, and as the words are being explained, instead of hearing God's voice say the words, we can all of a sudden hear Elijah's words being spoken to Ahab, God's words through Elijah. This is, this is incredible. This is, this is one of those points where we should just, just pause for a second and realize that Elijah is such a dependent servant of God, such a dependable servant of God that for Elijah to hear instructions for from God is for Elijah to obey. May it be said of Lewiston First Church of the Nazarene that to hear God give instructions is for us to obey. It doesn't need to be recorded that Elijah got up then and went and told Ahab this. It is a done deal. As soon as Elijah hears God telling him, get up and go and speak to Ahab. He is up and there. May we be people who hear the word of God and do not delay. May the story be written of us that God said it and they did it. There was no hesitation. There was no waiting. There was no, no, let me go back and kiss my father. There was, here I go. God, you've given instructions. I am moving in the direction you have instructed me. Amen? Amen. So, hmm. so my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered. I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. Now, the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike anywhere in Israel. I am going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and the family of Bashan, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. And then parenthetically it adds, No one else so completely sold themselves to what is evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. The worst outrage was worshiping idols, just as the Amorites had done the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. So, Elijah shows up, and Ahab's not happy to see him, and Ahab receives kind of really bad news, right? Really, really bad news. Um, the The idea of, of dogs licking up blood and vultures devouring, this, this signifies... You are not going to die in, in grace. You are going to die in disgrace. You are going to die in a situation where, where people aren't going to celebrate your life when you die. People are going to let your dead body sit in the streets and gonna let dogs eat away at it. Um the end of the book of First Kings and then Second Kings chapter nine. Just a little advertisement. If you want to read ahead and and find these prophecies fulfilled, God God doesn't lie. Uh, these are these are the this is foretelling the future. Uh, Ahab Ahab has has lost it. He's he has lost God. Any any good grace that he had from God, he he has completely lost it. And and the most interesting to me, I I said in verses twenty five and twenty six, those those parenthetical words, they're they're not quoted from, from the Lord to Ahab. It's just the authors want to make sure we understand Ahab is the worst. He's the worst of the worst of the worst. He is terrible. He is so bad. The authors can't leave it at just God has prophesied doom and destruction and dogs and vultures eating their bodies to his descendants because he's so bad. No, the authors have to put a fine point on it and say, Ahab is the worst. He is terrible. Do not follow in the footsteps of Ahab. And so, uh, that ends up being kind of the the summary of Ahab's reign. He, He is the worst. And then... Verse 27, but when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, he dressed in burlap and fasted, he even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. He understands the importance, he understands, he's blown it. Verse 28, then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. I told my girls this story one day at lunch I, as I was preparing for for preaching. Um, I told them the whole story. and And my girls, they understand my... My duty uh, as the as the preacher, and so they're they're astute enough to ask, well, "What's the preacher do with that, Dad?" <laughs> I said, "Well, a good preacher would know." Uh, let me make two observations. Um, the The first is a leadership point. Jezebel leads like the Phoenicians expected a leader. Uh, Ahab. Hadn't quite got his mind wrapped around leading in the Phoenician way and the way that Jezebel goes about getting what what Ahab wants. Ahab, Ahab, for all of his faults, he he continued to be a child of God and the children of God are are people who have leaders who are marked by leaders who serve those they lead. As as believers in Jesus, we we often think that. Jesus, or, or we kind of want to enshrine Jesus as the as the founder of servant leadership. And we love servant leadership. Jesus is a servant leader. Jesus said in John 13, 13, uh, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. Jesus called his his disciples to be People who, even if they're in positions of leadership, to, to serve those they lead. Jesus has, has not called, and, and God's people through history have not been called to take positions of leadership as, as seats of honor. But as seats that we use that position to serve others. And, and Jesus makes it that we serve the least of these that we would give a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty, that we would give clothing to those who don't have resources to clothe themselves, that we would give food to those who are hungry, that we would visit those who are sick and imprisoned. Because as, as leaders and in, uh, in followers of Jesus, we use any position we have to serve those who are, who are below us in the organizational chart. Now, we would like to maybe as as believers say that Jesus started this, but if we look at the Old Testament carefully, we understand there is a culture of of leadership from a position of service throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus himself says, I didn't make anything up. I just do what my father, uh, I see my father doing. I only say what I hear my father saying. So Jesus doesn't claim to be the, the founder of servant leadership. He, he claims to be the one who perfectly reveals God the Father to us. And so when God the Father in the Old Testament looks for, for servants, he looks for people like, like Moses, who was reluctant, who didn't want to take a position of authority, who didn't want to, to be the voice of God for his people. And Moses said, okay, God, if you'll give me the tools, I'll go and I'll serve my people in that way. He, God gave the judges who, who don't lead from the back commanding God's people where to go and the armies how to, how to lead. They, the judges are, are men and women who lead from the front and attack from the front when God's people need to attack. When, when God calls, calls people in the Old Testament, he, he calls um, men and women to, to serve his people to organize his people, to to move them together in the right direction. He doesn't call them to lord their leadership over other people. God's design for leadership is always a model of self-sacrifice. And God's people are to be marked by leaders and as leaders who offer themselves for those they serve. Uh, And we are all leaders. We are all leaders. We, We live in a world where people are looking for someone to set the tone. We live in a world where people are ready to, to respond back to us in the way that we respond. And so as, as believers, I think we are called to be, to be thermostats rather than thermometers. You know what I mean there? A, therm, a thermometer, it tells you what the temperature is. And and sometimes we we just we read the temperature of the room and we act like everyone else is acting. You ever walk into a room and there's a cloud? and and everybody's a little grumpy and so we say who are we grumpy at but a thermostat it knows what the temperature is but it says the temperature ought to be this and a thermostat a thermostat takes a room from the temperature it is and it sets the right temperature as believers we are to be thermostats we're to be people who set the tone who bring kindness and love and joy and peace who show patience we are people who who are called to set the tone, whether it's at work or at home or in any of our community involvements. At home, as as parents, where we are people who have the positional authority, we are called to set the tone. We're called to to say this is this is the tone that is going to be set, and it can be challenging. I, I have a I have one kid that has a strong personality, and. Uh, and she can set the tone sometimes and and kids will set the tone if you if you don't tell them no this is the tone this is the temperature of this room you are not going to set the temperature of this room as as spouses we we have to we have to sometimes you know god gave us each other because we can't always set the right temperature in the room and so sometimes it, we don't respond at the temperature that's being set we say no this is the temperature that that we want this house to be. We we are going to be a house where where kindness and patience and love prevail. At work, whether whether you're the boss or if it's your first day, God has called believers to set the tone, to be people who bring patience and kindness and love wherever we go. And, And to set that as the expectation, to not look out for our own, but to to recognize the power of rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn, but also recognizing that God gets all the glory and and we are going to focus our our attention on on the Lord. We're going to focus our attention on what is good and right and just and pure. We are going to focus our attention on on the things that honor God rather than, because, you know, it's really fun to talk about what's not pure and right, just and good. Those things get our, our emotions all stirred up, and we get we get interested in those things. But as believers, we're called to to be thermostats, setting the tone where where it pleases God. And in the community and in the church, uh, you know, especially in the church, we we are to be marked. By, by leaders and as leaders who look out for the, for the best interest of others. It, church can be a place where, where we play politics. I'm, by God's grace, this is not a place that we play a lot of politics. This is not a church where, where anybody is gathering power to, to exert their will over anyone. Not, we are not that kind of church. We are not going to be that kind of church, ladies and gentlemen. We're a church that seeks to honor God. The temperature of this place is a temperature of love and kindness and patience and joy, because be joyful, all right? So, this is God's plan for leadership. Jezebel shows a picture of leadership that is is what the world goes to when the world lacks God's vision. Uh, Jezebel shows a picture of leadership that squashes its enemies, that devalues anyone who stands in our way, and heaven forbid you say no to a leader who, who is ready to squash its enemies. The second piece of application that I I would make from this comes from this strange ending. What does a preacher do with, with God showing showing a little bit of mercy? You know, Ahab's whole family line is still going to be judged and die he He doesn't say, "Oh, you know what i'll spare your children, Ahab no, nope. he says, I will spare you watching your children die, but they will die and they won't rule over Israel. Your line is done and and that is what happens and and so it it strikes us as a little odd um, it's It's hard to say that God's mercy is really much, much more fair in any way. It, it doesn't strike us as fair in any way. But I, I think this part of the passage speaks to us as people who live in a world who see the wicked prosper and the good suffer. When, when it seems like God's thumb should be pressed on the scale a little bit in favor of the righteous, <laughs> uh, we, we want that. We, we think it ought to be that way. And scripture reveals to us it's it's not always. It's not always that way. And so, th- this passage reminds us first of God's mercy. God is frustratingly slow to get angry. As, as people who are, you know, we live in a world of action movies, uh, there is nothing better than when the villain drops off the top of the the high-rise tower at the end of Die Hard, right? I mean, we we are people who <laughs> we are just we are formed by a world that says vengeance is good and and the wicked deserve to die. And so we, you know, that is that is the culture we live in, that's the world we live in. And so it is it's pretty unsatisfying to read that Ahab could just cry a few tears over hearing these bad words and and god would relent we kind of think god just wipe him out just take him out let's let's read about those dogs licking up his blood shall we Uh, but this passage also reminds us that that god's judgment is sure god's judgment is sure god will not be frustrated uh as as unsatisfying as it is for for us as people who are shaped by action movies, that God's judgment waits until until Ahab doesn't see it. It does happen. It does happen. And God is good to his word. even, Even this really hard word. When God says, there won't be a male descendant left. God God does what He says. It it reminds us that that God's judgment is sure. And so, though we may not live to see it, those who trust in the Lord will be rewarded. And those who trust in themselves have only themselves to depend upon. And so, what do we do with that? We, We have to depend on God. We have to be content in, in this world to, to seek to obey God and to, to honor God in all that we do and know that it won't always lead down an easy path. To know that obedience to God does not mean all of the blessings that look like blessings in this world. It doesn't mean a nice house. It doesn't mean ease and great vacations but following God does come with God's justice eventually coming around. <laughs> it, it comes with the, the rewards that are eternal. But we know as people who are seeking to follow him that there are, in spite of the difficulties, there are also incredible benefits and blessings that come with obeying God day in and day out. There's, there's little mercies that God shows us as, as we seek to, to obey him. Even in in our most difficult moments, God seems to show little, little mercies here and there. I've been thinking about this idea of God's little mercies a lot lately, actually. Um, As we've been walking with our dear friend who lost her husband at the beginning of this month, beginning of July, time is flying. Um, The beginning of July... As, as she tells us her story she tells us about the little mercies the little mercies here and there that she's seen it was a it was a it was a blessed mercy she says about the the man who showed up at her door to be the one that told her her husband had died it was a little mercy that god gave her the clarity of thought to to stop and and just be kind to her daughters in that moment it was a little mercy god, even in, in our difficult times, it seems like God shows us these mercies. He's good to us. And so obedience doesn't always mean that we won't suffer. But it does mean that God will continue to be with us. God will not abandon us. God will watch over us. And so, may, may we be people who seek to obey. To, to not have to worry about the judgment that, that may be coming but who look for the blessing that God is is going to pour out, be it an eternal blessing or a blessing today in the form of a little mercy. And may we be people who reflect the goodness and patience of God. May we be leaders who who don't look to enact our will above all other ideas and and thoughts. May we be people who, who seek the best, for, for those who, who serve with us and alongside us. And may we reflect God to our world, who is so slow to get angry, so quick to show mercy, and so good to us. In spite of sometimes how how we see the, the negative that we see around us, God is still so good to us. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, we do we do know that you are good to us. We know that in this world we will have trouble. Jesus promised us that. Um, But Lord, we know that you you have not abandoned us. You are good to us. We struggle sometimes in, in this world to see see things that seem unjust and difficult, to see people get ahead when when it's not fair. It's not right. But Lord, we, we know that your, your justice is sure. We pray, though, that you would make us people who are quicker to, to look for mercy than we are to look for judgment. We would be people who are quicker to forgive than we are to condemn. We would be people who at every turn attempt to show your love. This is hard for us, God, because our world shapes us to be a different way. Our world makes us honor Jezebel, who uses her authority and her power to to get what she wants. Help us, Lord, to be shaped more by Jesus than our world. To be people who hear the words of Jesus, saying, as I've done unto you, so you do unto one another. That for us to hear would be to obey, God. Thank you, Lord, for these dear brothers and sisters of mine. I pray that you'd go with them into this week. Be with these who we are saying goodbye to today. I pray that you would just watch over Emily and Tobin and Gretchen in the week to come. Give them a great week. Help these first weeks and months of school to just be fun. And help them to to settle in well. Be with their families as they miss them. And watch over watch over their hearts as they say goodbye. We thank you, God, for, for this family, this church, that, that we come together and can support and love one another. God, continue to walk with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go. You are dismissed.